to Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah chapter 20. Let's get right into our study today. Now it was, um, as I was, I was looking at the number of chapters we've been doing and, and going through in Isaiah, I started thinking that, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, it took us four years to do 24 chapters of Luke on Sunday mornings. And, uh, and already we're up, up to chapter 20 in Isaiah. And we didn't start all that long ago. And I thought, well, that's wonderful, except for the fact that there's 66 chapters in this book. So we've still got a ways to go. <laughs> we're going to get there, though. Chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we? escape. This particular chapter, and that, by the way, that's the whole chapter read. This particular chapter actually acts as a footnote to the previous prophecy toward Egypt and is addressed to the people of Judah, which is, of course, the southern kingdom. It is always interesting to what lengths the Lord goes to get the attention of His own children. But here the reason is clear. Be careful, He wants them to know. Be careful of the alliances you want to make with neighboring countries. Be careful of the alliances you want to make with neighboring countries, especially when they are destined to fall. You see, the burden is toward Egypt, we've already seen the burden toward Ethiopia. But the burden is toward Egypt, <clears throat> that they would realize this is going to happen to them as Assyria is sweeping down to the south. Judah is to look at this and say, we ought not to look to them for our protection. What's the answer? We should be looking to God for our protection. And so this prophecy now begins with a very solid marked point in secular history. It is something that gives us a, 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 a date, as it were, a, a, a very near a, a good close time. You know, when you, when you read various uh, secular historians, you, you realize that they sometimes give you, you know, two to three years on either side of something, you know. Some dates are very exact, as we know when we study the book of Daniel, and we see some very important dates set for us there, you know, uh, especially toward the end time and all. But, uh, but here, there is a solid point given to us, and that is around 711 B.C. Some historians will say 713, so there's a couple of, uh, of, of years to play with. But, but this was the year that the commander of the armies of Assyria, who is mentioned here, Tartan. Now, actually, Tartan is not so much a name as it is a, a title. It, it Really, the title is, is commander-in-chief. But uh, Tartan conquered the Philistine city of Ashdod on that year, as our text indicates. So it lets you know, of course, being that there was a, about a century or so from the time that, that uh, Isaiah is, is giving some, uh, this particular... Uh, prophecy, as it were, actually a few years before, and and so it's it's letting us know, you know, the, the time frame, as it were. It is significant that for many, many, many years, 
Sargon, king of Assyria, was unknown to history. He was unknown. In other words, we see the names in the, in the scriptures and people said for many years, well, you know, is that a made-up name? Because we've never found anything, you know, in the, in the history of the Assyrians and all of that, of any kings whatsoever, at least any certain king. And here, uh, Sargon was one who was, was not known in history until his name in the last century. And I say the last century, I guess I'm still in the 20th century, but in the 19th century, actually. Until his name was found in the 19th century upon monuments discovered in certain archaeological digs which confirmed Isaiah's records. As a matter of fact, the, the archaeologists who found this, it was about in the mid-1800s, about 1842, I believe, that this particular uh, monument had certain names on it, and they coincided with what the Bible already said. Now, some would like to say that archaeology confirms the Bible, but I'd rather believe that since the Bible is God's inerrant word and therefore is always right, that it is Scripture that confirms the archaeologist's mind. I like to look at it that way. I think that's, that's a better way to look at it because the archaeologists have only you know, dirt and dust and, and picks and shovels and all to work with and God already said it's already there. But it's great to know that the Lord will allow us to find certain things so that we can realize His Word is true. And so these names fit in secular history. And so do the time frame. Just as a reminder, understand this about God's Word. Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21. through 21. He said, And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. So you see, the light of God's Word shines, and all of a sudden, all these other things start popping up, and, and we say, hey, look, the name. I know, the name was already here. The light has shined and confirms the find of the archaeologist. And he says, you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, being, of course, Jesus, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we have the move of the Holy Spirit in God's Word confirming, as it were, these archaeological finds. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Man will argue and, and criticize and argue and, and, and want to tear down this whole thought, but all Scripture, Paul said, is given by inspiration of God. As a matter of fact, this particular verse is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. We are thoroughly equipped because God's Word is true. Every jot, every tittle, every word, every, everything that we find in God's Word is true. Getting back to our study, while the Philistines now were, were neighbors to Israel, they were also thorns in the sides. And so the fall of Ashdod, Ashdod being in, in, in Philistia as it were, made Israel think that if this were to happen to their enemies the way it did, then Judah was next and needed protection. See, this is the way they thought. Hey, look at our enemies. You know, these guys have been taken out, but you know what? Those other guys coming down here are enemies too. And so Isaiah was commanded by God to become, to become a sign. Not to give a, a word or to give a sign. He was to become a sign. Primarily to the Egyptians, and also to Cush, which is Ethiopia, but also a warning to Judah concerning their desire for an alliance with these nations. They wanted to align with these people because they said, the more the merrier. Listen, we got this big army coming down here, we should align. God is saying, you don't need that. So what does he do? Look at verse 2. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And by the way, naked here is not naked. And we were just saying naked as a jaybird. We are talking about, you know, him having that outer garment off of him. And the only thing that he has is a loin cloth, as it were. But that was considered nakedness. And you'll see in just a moment. 
what I mean by that. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. Hey, listen, three years this way. Walking that way for the people to see him as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Well, we're, we're down to PG you know, 13 now. So the picture is very clear, very vivid. The prophet was to become a sign to the Egyptians of the hardships that would be brought upon them by the Assyrian armies. Before all of this, remember this, Isaiah had been wearing an outer garment of sackcloth. That's made clear by what God tells him. Take off the outer garment of sackcloth. He's wearing sackcloth, which is what? It was the clothing of mourning and grief. What has he been doing? He's been laying down these burdens upon Babylon, upon uh, uh, Moab, uh, upon Egypt, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so he is laying down these. These are burdens to him. The sackcloth was a sign of grief and mourning. This was a, a, this was a major uh, calling of the prophets to nations, as it were. And now the Lord commands him to remove his outer garments and take his sandals off, leaving him with only his inner garment. You see, the message wasn't about nudity, as it was about complete poverty and humiliation. That's what nakedness was. It wasn't about nudity, it was about nakedness. Complete poverty, complete humiliation. And to the oriental mindset, the eastern mindset, the laying aside of his long robe gave him the appearance of nakedness. And it was in this way that Isaiah became a sign. This is what would happen, you see. When the Assyrians would come and take you captive, they would take off your robes. And you would have to go in, in, in just your loincloth, not even your shoes, and be taken as prisoners in that way. That was saying, we're in complete control of you. You go where we take you, you go where we put you, you do what we say. Complete humiliation. And can you imagine Isaiah doing this for three years? And yet the message was to be clear to Egypt. The king of Assyria would lead them away in this manner as prisoners. I mean, this was all done to the shame of Egypt. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. You, you, sometimes you look at the news and sometimes you see people in chains or whatever. You know, they're, they're arrested for one thing or another and they're you know, they're taking a lot of them. They don't want to be seen. You know, they try to cover their faces. Some, some put jackets over their heads. You know, there, there's, a, there's a shame involved for some. It's a, you know, I don't want anybody to see me because, uh, you know, <laughs> they might be after me, you know, whatever. But, but a lot of times it's just shame. What's interesting, though, that in our day and age, a lot of times that shame doesn't even exist anymore. They're kind of proud of what they're doing. There's no remorse for the crimes that they've committed. That, that's a sad part of our society today because, you know, what it's saying is exactly what the Bible is saying when, when we're told that we're living in a day of lawlessness. And people are really more or less proud of what they do when it comes to what, what they do against the law. You know, I've always used this example. It's a mundane example, but it's still a, a good example, I think, of, of that is, is, is you know, the, the running of red lights. Uh, you know, putting, endangering people by doing that. And, and, and now, of course, you have a couple of foreigners in our city. You know, got the cameras, you know. Freaked me out one night. You know, I thought somebody must have done it, and the lights went off. And I was going, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Smile, you're on candid camera. You know, I don't know what was going on. Man, I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> thought we were being invaded. Where are the world? Ah. But, uh, you know, it, it just, you, you just think, you know. Now, now people are beginning to stop a little bit, but they already know where the, the cameras aren't. So, you know, in other places, you know, it is. It's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nobody else matters. Just what they want to do. So it's a lawless issue. But shame, shame was was a major deal in the East. Still is. And so, three years, Isaiah did this as a sign. And Judah was to get the message as well about their desired alliance. They were desiring alliances with these people, and God is telling them, "I don't think so." Isn't this the way that the enemy of our souls deals with his wretched captives? I'm talking about the shame. I'm talking about those who are right now in captivity to the world, in captivity to the enemy. 
Isn't this the way that the enemy of our souls deals with his wretched captives whom he drives toward hell, naked and barefoot and with their buttocks uncovered, the shame of their nakedness exposed to public view for lack of the covering of Christ's righteousness that they might be clothed? When we came to Christ, we were clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we came to Christ, we were covered with the righteousness of Christ. There is not a nakedness about us when it comes to that. There's not a nakedness of our hearts. There's not a nakedness of our souls. Christ has covered us. Christ has given us His righteousness. Paul in Romans 13 verses 12 through 14 says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. There's the contrast right there. Everybody who is in that darkness, everybody who is in that revelry and drunkenness and lewdness and lust and strife and envy, every one of them is a prisoner like the Egyptians who is out naked and exposed to the world in that, in that darkness. And Paul is saying, put on, the, put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. Ephesians 4, 20-24 says, But you have not so learned Christ. We have not learned Christ this way of the darkness and all of that. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. There it is, putting on Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in and all. Put in on Christ. Lastly, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So when we make that public confession of baptism, what are we doing? Public, we were putting on Christ. So no longer naked. Isn't it interesting that in the book of, 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 uh, of Revelation, in the letters to the churches, the last church addressed is the church of Laodicea. They were deceived. They said, we are rich and we have need of nothing. And what does Jesus tell them? Oh, but you are what? Poor, blind, and naked. I'm, I'm afraid that there's a lot of people in the church of Jesus Christ today that are leaning towards that church of Laodicea of, of thinking themselves of need of, of nothing from God. We have everything. Look at us. Look at us. Look at how we prosper. Look at how much we have. Look at... And God says, you know what? You're poor, blind, and naked. You can't even tell your nakedness. You're blind. Your treasures aren't to be here. Your treasures are to be in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where neither thieves can break in and steal. That's where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. And so when God judges Egypt, and God judges, judges Ethiopia, it will be evident how foolish it would be for Judah to look to them for protection against Assyria. And so the last two verses of Isaiah 20 says, then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation and Egypt, their glory, and the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? Judah, in essence, was backed into a corner and caught between two great empires without being able to trust either one. Caught between the empires of Assyria and Egypt. Not to mention Cush, but you know they're not as great as, as Egypt, or would be as great. But there they were, caught between Assyria and Egypt. You know what do we do? You know Egypt. We want them to be an ally, but 
God tells us no, and Assyria is coming. How shall we escape? Isn't that an interesting question? They can't trust either one of those other nations. And here's the rock in the hard place. There isn't any escape except in the Lord. There isn't any escape except in the Lord. And isn't it interesting how God works His way in this kind of warning to bring Judah to look to God? Don't trust them. Look at, look at Isaiah. Three years, I've got to make him go naked. Poor guy. <laughs> Walking around just to show them. That's what Ethiopia, that's what Egypt's going to be like. You want to follow that? Eventually, if you follow them, guess what? You'll be naked too. What should you do? Trust me. God is wanting them to see that. But why is it? But so often in the Scriptures, and you can look this up in a word study of the word trust, but Psalm 20, verses 7-9, through 9, the psalmist says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. That's, that's like saying we trust in our military. We trust in our military establishment. We trust in the very fact that we're the strongest nation in all the world. Yeah, but you better trust in the Lord. Because in a moment, that could be all gone. But God never goes. You know, it would have been tempting for Judah to make Egypt their expectation, Egypt and Ethiopia their expectation and their glory. Based on the last part of chapter 19 in which Egypt as we studied last time, would be revived and restored. But with that three-year sign given dramatically by Isaiah, it would have all been in vain. Their expectation and glory was to be in God and God alone. And so this brings us to chapter 21. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunder plunders. Go up, O Elam, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. The first ten verses of chapter 21 refer to Babylon once again. I mentioned this when we studied the burden of Babylon in chapter 13. Even though Elam and Medea are mentioned in verse uh, in verse 2, making some people assume that the destruction of Babylon was that which took place in 539 B.C. when it was the Medo-Persian Empire. If that were the case, though, then it should have made Israel rejoice or it would have meant their release from captivity. So we have to then consider another time, rather than the 539 B.C. date, in which Medo, uh, the Medo-Persians uh, took Babylon. That, of course, you find in the book of Daniel. Instead, we have to look at an earlier date, more than likely 689 B.C., which coincides with the characters mentioned in chapter 20, in particular after Sargon. We mentioned Sargon. But when Babylon's defeat meant the destruction of the northern kingdom and the devastation of the southern kingdom. So this was at that time when Assyria, you know, and all, was, was making their move and their march. But the wilderness of the sea mentioned here, by the way, is in verse 1 is referring to Babylon by the Persian Gulf. Babylon by the Persian Gulf. So that is the wilderness of the sea. Uh, and the picture being drawn here by the prophet is that of the original desert storm. How many of you remember desert storm? It's an interesting uh, name for a, 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 a military uh, push, but uh, <laughs> this was the first desert storm. And you'll notice that by the words that are used. The burden against the wilderness of the sea as whirlwinds in the south pass through. So it comes from the desert from a terrible land. 
Uh, and so you see this, this storm. It's talking really about a storm that's passing through the desert. This is the original desert storm. Uh, invasion. And it was an invasion, by the way, by a person. It was a, he was a Chaldean uh, leader named Marduk Apal Idina. Biblically, his name is Merodach Baladan, who is, who is supported by the Elamites. The Elamites, again, is the region from where the Persians came from. And so in Isaiah 39, verse 1, just so you'll notice the name, again, it is a secular name. The first name I mentioned, uh, Marduk Apal Idina, but the Bible calls him Merodach Baladan, and that is found in verse 1 of Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah, for he uh, heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, that, that's because he's the king of Babylon because they were the ones that came and invaded it. So it's not, it's not too confusing when you realize that uh, Babylon was, was being swept in this earlier time uh, by these uh, particular uh, Chaldeans. Now, verse 2 of our text indicates that this was, in fact, an uprising against Assyria by Elam and Media to free Babylon from the Assyrians. But nonetheless, it was in the, na- in the, in the land of Babylon. Now, sometimes, and, and I've got to mention this, but sometimes you can't tell the players without a scorecard. And it gets awfully rough around these particular chapters to, you know, make sure that we're, we're, we're aligning everybody in the right place. It gets really confusing. Because Chaldeans are what? Normally they're Babylonians, right? So here's a Babylonian coming down to, you know, to uh, come upon Babylon. But in fact, he's coming upon the Assyrian takeover of Babylon so that they can get Babylon back. You know, so it's, it's just a lot of stuff going on that uh, sometimes is a little confusing, you know, to kind of uh, make distinct. But, uh, but as is often the case, but, but this is something that you can bank on. As is, some, as is all often the case, the Lord uses one tyrant to punish another, as here he stirs up the Elamites and the Medians, or Medeans, I should say, to plunder and to waste the Babylonians. Much later then, when the Babylonians are a great world power, they would be punished by the Persians, who would be punished by the Macedonians. The Macedonians would then be taken by the Romans. And the Romans would then would be taken by the Huns and the Vandals and the Lombards and the Saracens and the Turks. And all of whom, by the way, will be destroyed when Christ comes again. That's what's going to happen eventually, at the very end. But that's what's going to happen. So you need a scorecard. Well, here's your scorecard, the Bible. Um, you know, from time to time, we're going to have sometimes trying to make some distinctive uh, comparisons here. But we go on. Let's go on. Now that I've confused you enough, verses 3 through 5. Therefore my loins, and this is Isaiah now saying, Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me. Like the pangs of a woman in labor. That, that, that's an indication. That is something that is not only going to be taking place in a, in a near fulfillment, but also in a far fulfillment. Like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Then he says, prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. I'll explain that in just a moment. Well, let me explain the anointing of the shield right now. They're preparing for war. Shields were not made of complete metal. In those days, they were made of leather and metal kind of bound together. And the anointing of it, of course, meant that they put oil on it to make sure that the leather leather didn't dry, especially as they're going off to war, and that it would make it strong and keep you know keep the strength in, in, with the wood and the metal and the and the leather all together. So that's that was that's what it meant. Prepare yourself for war. They didn't want to go into war with a you know with with cracked uh, leather because you know a spear was coming right through. Vamos. So here's the groanings of the prophet. The prophet is groaning because this judgment is coming upon the Babylonians. Interesting, isn't it? But it fits very much with the heart of God. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God does not rejoice at at the death of the wicked. God does not rejoice at the death of the wicked. There's a pain. The 
The people have had to be judged because they have taken, taken their eyes off of the Lord. They've taken their eyes off of God. Because eventually evil and wickedness has to be judged. That's going to have to come upon those who have turned their backs on God. And so the groanings that had come upon the people by the Babylonians were not only to fall on the Babylonians, but upon Isaiah as well. You can go back to Isaiah 13, the, the burden of, of Babylon. In Isaiah 13, verse 8, it says, And they will be afraid. This is the people. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in, a, in pain as a woman in childbirth. There's that phrase again. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. That happens to them because of what Babylon has done. Now Babylon goes through it. And because Babylon is going through it, Isaiah is burdened in the same manner. So the prophet describes his own reaction. And unlike false prophets who played to the audience and they rejoiced over the defeat of the enemy, Isaiah suffered agony, pangs and sorrows, that such horrors must enter the world. It, it, uh, it's painful to see war close up. It's painful to see what man can do in destroying other men. I, I happened this afternoon to get a video from uh, Raul Reese, uh, a movie that he actually had made, uh, I'd have to say, about 16 years ago. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Some of you may know it. It's, it's about uh, uh, Vietnam, and uh, it's about men who, a couple of them, a few of them, as a matter of fact, Pancho Juarez is in it, and Raul, and, and uh, a couple of other Calvary pastors that were in Vietnam. Uh, but uh, it's, it's somewhat of a documentary, but it's also an outreach to Vietnam veterans. Uh, I can't remember, but I'm going to show it next this coming new year, so sometime, so everybody, whoever is interested in, would like to see it. But uh, they were talking about their experiences of seeing uh, people around them, you know, guys that they kind of became, you know, comrades in arms with, and just friends and buddies, and all of a sudden, you know. Uh, Right in front of them, they're blown to bits or whatever. You know, and it's just it's painful to hear that. But this is what man can do. And uh, you know, we, we we came into a generation a while back at the Vietnam era when 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 all of a sudden we we brought Vietnam into our living rooms through the news. But we got to the point where it didn't bother us so much as we were just sitting there with our TV trays eating dinner and watching it. And and, and you know, it makes you wonder about the heart of man today. How easy it is for us not to have pain when, when others are suffering, whether they're enemies or not. Because as Christians, we have to realize something. When a person who has uh, you know, taken on a, a, a certain philosophy or, or, a, or a certain political perspective that, that is antagonistic toward God and toward Christ, that guy dies for eternity. That person is lost forever. And, and you know... You can imagine what pain that is to the God who created these people. And, and so, you know, we have to realize this perspective of, of the, I should say, of the prophet Isaiah. He was staggered, he was bewildered and condemned to a sleepless night. And the scene changes now in verse 5 to the generals who were enjoying a great banquet when they were called to battle and to prepare for war. Now, there are some who believe this is a scene right out of Daniel chapter 5 that deals with the overthrow of Belshazzar. You know, they're all partying when, when the Medo-Persians actually come through the dried-up Euphrates River. And this is, again, a historical event that took place. This is how they came into, into Babylon and, and actually took over um, um, the Babylonian kingdom under Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. But, uh, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there because it does, you know, it's, the words itself you know, possibly can lean toward that. But if you read from verse 5 through verse 10, it says, Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield, for thus has the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. That is an interesting picture to me. You know, when we think of chariots, we think of Ben-Hur. And y'all remember the movie Ben-Hur? You know, I'm sure some of you have seen it. I've seen it many times. I just love that, that chariot scene, you know. 
Then the guy that's got the real neat rims, you know, cutting their... Man, I said, man, that's, that's uh, super sport. But anyway, uh, you know, so uh, you, you see this thing and you think horses and these mighty big arms. Then you say chariots of donkeys and chariots of camels. I'm like, that doesn't look too good <laughs> in my mind, you know, the picture. But that's what it says. And he listened earnestly with great care. And then he cried, a lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. So he's, he's seeing things happen. And so he's crying because he's the watchman. This is coming. It's happening. It's taking place. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor. That which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared You see, it gives Isaiah no pleasure to be able to predict the awful sufferings Israel's enemies were to be exposed to in this coming invasion. In the midst of the merry banquet, uh, an alarm is sounded. The enemy is advancing. Everyone is told to make themselves ready for battle. See, that's that's where, where it's distinctive from the Daniel 5 episode because there they were having a party and they didn't realize they'd already come in and invaded uh, the town quietly. So everyone is told to make themselves ready for battle. The prophet himself is to be stationed on the watchtower as a lookout. It's Isaiah. Just like Habakkuk, the other prophet, Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That's hard to say, Habakkuk chapter 2. But there's a lot of K's in Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, I will stand my watch and sit myself on the rampart. So the prophet is the watchman and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And then the Lord answered and said, Write the vision and make, the plain, make it plain on tablets that he, may, that he may run who reads it. So it is a prophet's preparation, folks. In other words, to strike an alert posture spiritually. To strike an alert posture spiritually to receive an expected revelation. And what he sees is applicable to the armies of Elam and Medea. Horsemen and donkeys and camels. Why those animals? Because they were used by the Persian armies. This is secular history. This is what we've learned about their, uh, their military tactics. They used donkeys and camels to confuse the enemy. And it would confuse me. That's what they did. And that was something distinctive to the Elamites and the Medeans. And Israel was to take careful note that the fall of Babylon was near. In fact, the report comes to the watchman in this manner in verse 9. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It is significant that Jeremiah the prophet and John the apostle both Adopt Isaiah's words. Jeremiah 51 verse 8. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Perhaps. Revelation chapter 14 verse 8. In one particular place, it is John saying here, recording as it were, another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The same words as Isaiah. That great city because she has made all nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In Isaiah's time, pointing to the near fulfillment. In John's time, what? Pointing to the far fulfillment. The end times. Revelation 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Emphasizing it twice. Why? Because it is a done deal. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Verse 10 of our text teaches us once again that the message is ultimately for Judah. Because literally it says, and it, it isn't in, our, uh, in the New King James this way, but literally it says, my people crushed on the threshing floor. My people crushed on the threshing floor. With deep compassion, the prophet thinks of his own people trampled by Babylon, and crushed like grain. Again, Judah could never depend on Babylon and her gods in the fight against Assyria. 
Somewhere down the line, all of this would entail Israel's salvation. Somewhere down the line, this meant Israel would be saved. And when? When she returns to trust in her own God who holds the future in the palm of His hands. God holds the future of Israel in His hands. I want to encourage you. This is a commercial, by the way. I want to encourage you this weekend. I'm doing a a prophetic study on Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Prophetic study. Uh, it's kind of a prophetic update for the year 2006-2007. I've entitled it, Israel, My Beloved. And the focus of this study has to do with the restoration of God's people. That Israel is who God says they are and what the Bible says about it. But I want to encourage you because the Bible continues to tell us this and I, I don't tell you enough, but pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is a, a command of God to us. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To know that Israel is God's people and those who, who bless her will be blessed and those who curse her will be cursed. That is a promise given to us in Genesis chapter 12. And so, yes, salvation comes, but at what price? At what price? In verses 11 and 12, we get another burden here. The burden against Duma. And the funny thing is that that word Duma uh, literally means silence, but, but it, it, it coincides with the English word dumb. Just thought I'd throw that in there. But it really does. The burden against the dumb ones, I guess. Uh, Duma. He calls to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Return, come back. Interesting little words. So, some commentators say, we don't understand what this is. So there's a lot of different outlooks of this particular two verses here. Again, Duma was another name for the kingdom of Edom, which was located in the mountainous region of Seir. No, not again, I'm telling you now. Uh, it was another name for the kingdom of Edom. Uh, these were the descendants of Esau. They were the descendants of Esau. Those of you who went to Israel, if you remember from across uh, uh, when we went down toward Masada and all, and you see the Dead Sea. On the other side, you saw the mountains. Some, some of them were called Red Mountains. That was, that was Edom. That was uh, the area. Uh, so, so these were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, Israel. And while this is a puzzling burden for commentators, there are a few ideas based on what the word Duma means. The word itself in Hebrew means silence, which was used in many cases to describe the realm of the dead. Psalm 94, verse 17 says, Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. He's talking about the dead, the realm of the dead. Psalm 115, verse 17 says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. You see, the realm of the dead. You know, once you die, you're pretty silent. And we would hope it stays that way, you know, and we go visit, you know, and people look at the body. It's not silent. I'm out of there because, you know, the realm of the dead is silence. The realm of the dead is silence. So if this is so then, then Edom would be characterized as a land of deathly silence. And in conjunction with its ties to Jacob as his twin, it would typify the people who despise the blessings of the covenant of grace and are known for their hostility towards Israel. They might have been expected to be Israel's allies, but the opposite was the case. As for the prophecy, Edom calls out to the watchman, inquiring what time of night it was, wanting to know if there was any hope, any light. And the reply was brief, but it was adequate. Morning was coming because Assyria would be defeated by God in the fields of Judah. But the morning would not last because Babylon would take Assyria's place and bring further darkness to the nations. Edom didn't heed the invitation given by the watchman. What was it? Inquire. If you're going to inquire, inquire. But come and return. Come and return. Come and return to safety. Come and return to your God. But they didn't heed that warning. They would be taken by the Babylonians and then by the Persians and finally by the Romans. And listen to these words in Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 12 through 17. It says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. 
And make straight paths for your feet so that, would, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You can almost take this phrase and say this is God speaking to the Edomites. And here's the reason why. Looking carefully, verse 15, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What happened to Edom? What happened to Esau? He was bitter, bitter toward Jacob. And eventually the Edomites are the, the ones who had followed Esau out and his family. They were bitter toward their brothers. But God makes that clear in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That's a sad story. Well, we don't have time. The next prophecy concerns Arabia. In verses 13 through 17, the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge. And I'm thinking, what forest in Arabia? All they have is sand. But in fact, they, they didn't have forests like we understand forests, but they had, they had uh, all kinds of, um, I forget what they call them, what, big, humongous type bushes. Uh, not, not talking about the uh, oasis with the palm trees and stuff. But they had uh, certain kinds of shrubbery and stuff that they actually could use to to hide in the in the in the in the heat of the day and all and all that. They call that forest. But anyway, in the forest in Arabia, you will lodge all you traveling companions of of Dedanites. The, you know, Dedan was also in in the area of Arabia. These are all, by the way, names that are found within the area of Arabia, and they are in fact the real Arabs. Of today, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, also in Arabia, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. And you remember now the, the, these Arabians, and even to this day, uh, some of them are, are still nomadic tribes uh, that uh, uh, are, are kind of all scattered around the land. Uh, so they scattered from the distress of war. Verse 16, For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And, and what it's saying is, of course, then again, using that year, that in a year's time, to the very day, this is going to happen, to the glory of Kedar. Again, another tribe. And the remainder of the number of archers, the, men, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. So the prophet is seeing these caravans of, of the Arabian merchants from Dedan leaving the trade route and hiding in the thickets. There's the word, <laughs> the thickets, because of the invasion of the Assyrian armies. Food and water were brought to the fugitives by people from Tema, an oasis town, again, in, in uh, Arabia. And eventually the caravan had to flee since the slow animals the merchants had could never compete with the Assyrian cavalry. So this is the picture that's happening. There's this trade, you know, these Arabians are going on their trade routes and stuff, but the Assyrians are coming. And within a year, the pomp and the glory of the Arabian tribes would be diminished. And I say diminished, not destroyed. Because the terminology is interesting that it doesn't describe destruction or annihilation. And certainly a few of the tribes would survive, but a thought has to be kept in mind. The pride of the Ishmaelite tribes was to be humbled and their city spoiled. But not as the Edomites. We were talking about the Edomites. They were taken by the Babylonians and by the Romans and then, you know, and so on and so forth. What happened to the Edomites? As a matter of fact, the Idumeans, the name was changed when the Persians were controlling Edom. They changed it to Idumea, Duma. You see, the same name is still there. You know what happened to them? By the way, Herod was an Edomian. The Herod family was Edomian. But after A.D. 70, at the destruction of Jerusalem, guess what? The Edomites vanished. They were gone. No more Edomites. Interesting. Now, the Ishmaelite tribes, the Arab tribes, as it were, 
have a promise, don't they? Something that came to the son of Abraham, Ishmael, or the son of the flesh, not the son of the spirit, the son of the flesh. And for his reasons, God has preserved these descendants of Abraham's son. The effects, whether good or bad, have been felt even in our day and age. May I say that they were felt on 9-11. The lessons from these burdens were for Judah's sake. The lessons from all of these burdens, from Babylon to Moab to Ethiopia, it was all for Judah's sake. The very center of the Bible, when you compare every verse of Scripture, the center of the Bible is Psalm 118, verse 8. And it says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Verse 9, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Judah needed to trust in their God. I leave you with Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. That word forever is significant. It's not just some kind of a poetic word. It is a factual, actual word. His people will be surrounded forever. Don't forget to come to church this weekend so you'll know what that means. And so, Isaiah 20 and 21, shall we pray?